0: In this episode, Parag Amin, CFO at Dot Digital Group, shares his insights on how to build a compelling company narrative, the importance of thinking as an analyst versus an accountant, and what the pandemic recovery may look like across the world. Hey, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Welcome, Parag, and thanks for joining us on the, on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Great to be here.
0: So I'd like to start, actually, you've got a very interesting background and, and the journey is not one that you often see, which is where you've gone from the world of tier one investment banking, like various analyst roles, then into being a founder and then into being a CFO and, and not just any company, but a public company. So can you talk a little bit about how you charted that, that journey? Because it's, it's quite a unique one.
1: When you work in, I suppose, the analyst role in an investment bank, you are, in simplistic terms, doing three things. You're you're modeling out company financials, so you, you have the numbers element. You're meeting, evaluating management teams, and then you're looking at business strategy. So ultimately, you're doing three things, particularly in terms of forecasting numbers, deciding on whether you believe management teams can succeed and execute on their plan, and then whether the plan can actually work based on the industry. Now, a lot of those skills are very transferable into management roles within businesses, in in my view, because ultimately that, that's a lot of what a senior exec team needs to do themselves. So... I've worked at the likes of Goldman Sachs and Citi and big investment banks, but I also had experience at some of the smaller UK mid-cap banks, such as Peel Hunt and then Canaccord. And that gave me a kind of breadth of looking at technology companies from the very small, some very small UK technology companies all the way through up to large global, very large cap businesses, even back in the day, the likes of Nokia and Ericsson and ASML and others. So I've, I've, looked at a lot of different tech companies from an analyst perspective met a lot of management teams and and therefore obviously when you're writing research modeling out a lot of businesses so the dot digital opportunity came along now just over three years ago i suppose because they were very odd thing to say but they were very accountant heavy so and i would also say that the board at the time the likes of Frank B. who's now the CEO of Smart Space, and Pete Simmons, who's who's also on the likes of D4T4 and Richard Kellett-Clark, were were forward-looking and quite exploratory in terms of um, the role that they saw for a CFO within a business. Because typically and traditionally, CFOs have been accountants and and potentially, wrongly so, but stereotyped as sort of bean counters. They were much more visionary in their thinking in in the sense that they they wanted someone – at Dot Digital, who could do more than just sort of the basic accounts because there were enough accountants within the business already. They wanted someone who could forecast and look ahead, translate the numbers into something that was tangible for the city analysts, but also for the broader investment community. They wanted someone who could help the CEO strategically, but also be very data-driven, data-focused, data-heavy, but thirdly, also someone who knew the investment community, which you know, with the number of places I worked at and the time and the longevity, I probably am one step removed from most people in the city, which meant that I was able to help formulate the narrative around what the business was becoming, because Dot Digital itself had grown up from being the sort of the Dot Mailer platform that it was known for in the UK as an email sends platform, to now becoming what we are today, which is a data-driven, multi-channel marketing automation platform. And that journey is not always the easiest to explain to an investment community because you're trying to change their mindset of what they believe the company is. Because having worked on the fund management side, the one thing you don't have a lot of is time. Because if you think about your investment pool, you could be investing in anything in the world. So there are thousands of companies that you're looking at. You don't get to spend days and days just evaluating one business you're spending time looking at it very high level looking at the the overall financial metrics comparing valuation versus other businesses you get some input from the sell side of course but ultimately you focus on those companies you think are in the right space and have the right financial metrics and performance metrics so the challenge at the time when i joined dot digital was to ensure that the financials were solid from an investment perspective but that the story matched and the narrative matched what the business was looking to achieve over the next three years. And I'd like to say, Touchwood, we've done a good job on that. One of the best performing shares in the UK market over over that period. But we've still got a way to go. And so you know, that skill set that I that I bring, I think adds value. But it's it's evolving over time, and you've got to continue to make sure that you're up with the uh, the constant change in technology that we're delivering for our customers being translated into something tangible that the investment community can can hang on to, to see why dot digital is a stock that you should be owning for the long term.
0: And I actually, I looked when I was researching uh, dot digital and trying to understand the business a bit more, I, I was looking actually at the share price. And again, another technology company that's just had an incredible ride over the past 12-15 months and obviously in the old Steve Jobs adage like stocks can go down as well as up we all know that that's that it's an unpredictable market you know that perhaps better than anyone else but it's a clear demonstration of trust which is impressive to see.
1: Yeah and we have gone up and down with certain news flow we've had in my time we've had the, in, in the introduction of GDPR it was a, a regulation that did change things for for the industry to, to a large extent We've navigated that well. We've obviously had the pandemic. That's when it first kicked in. Everything was an unknown. Again, with the strong balance sheet we have and the cash flows we generate, we've we've navigated that well as well. But, you know, stocks, as you say, do go up and down and, and we have those. But the long term, it's around making sure we have consistent profitable growth with strong top line and that for me has been the biggest challenge that we as dot digital face versus many of our competitors who are privately listed or other technology companies that that don't necessarily have to have the same operating margin profile that we do the same let's say even cash flow metrics etc so we're highly cash generative we're you know, strong ebitda and operating margins we're growing top line over 20% was the last reported number and those are metrics that Aren't easy to maintain, but that's what we're ultimately looking to continue to do. We're in a, a good space. Communication channels continue to increase. The, the the volume of communication across digital channels will always continue to increase as well. So we're in a good space where you know we make sure we invest wisely back into the business and allows us to hit those performance metrics. But ultimately, yeah, being a public business, you're you're always having to to make sure that you manage according to what the market expects.
0: And you, you spoke a, a bit about the story and that, that's something that I've been personally involved in, whether it's Soldo or, or prior to that at Dropbox, is trying to tell that story, whether it's on a small part or part of a funding round or, or wherever. And I think that there's there's real artistry in being able to tell the right story. But as you said, you're, the challenge like, like for you and you're doing it to like people who are investing publicly, but of course there are many CFOs and finance leaders who are doing it as part of a venture back journey. The challenge is how do you communicate to that audience who are so time poor and who are naturally very analytical because they can get a truth from the numbers. So there's a bias towards the benchmarking. And you mentioned the three things like the financial planning, the, the modeling, the team and the strategy and the financial part. In some cases, that can be the dominant one because it's the it's the most binary quantitative and you can actually say you can put someone on a scale and it's very definitive but the team and the strategy is is the arguably as important if not in some cases more important but it's much harder to judge so how do you balance that tension up and tell the the most compelling and effective story to to that time poor audience
1: yeah i mean it's the it resonates back to my analyst days where the front page where you have probably three maybe four short paragraphs to to convey that story for people then to actually want to open the report comes into it. Where, to your point, the financials, they're almost a byproduct to a large extent of the of the former two. Because if you have the right strategy in terms of your positioning within your market, your segment of that market, whatever that sort of niche may be within your industry. So for us, we are omnichannel marketing automation. So the first question I would ask as a potential investor into the business is, how fast is that industry growing? What is your market position in it? And what is the competitive landscape look like, right? Very very simple question. So if you can address, whether it's the TAM, and TAMs are always difficult, right? Your total addressable market, you can kind of make it whatever you want, but give some indication of what's left in that pie that you could potentially take. The second part is why you are positioned successfully against your peer group and you know, if you're a technology business, why your technology would stand out? Why would someone want to buy it? That gives you comfort in the business model. You've then got to have the second element, which is comfort in the management team and the leadership to say, can they execute on what they're saying? If those two boxes are ticked, the financials almost become a byproduct because you're ultimately saying, okay, let's say the market's growing at 20%. Well, if you believe that business is positioned well, has a product that is as good as, if not better than its peer group, can invest in sales and marketing to make sure that it's relevant, can continue to invest in the product. Well, it should grow more than the market ultimately, because it should take share from weaker competitors. So you've almost got a natural, let's for argument's sake, say the market grows 20%. Your business will grow 20 to 25, could be higher, but that's your, and, so, and then off there, you can base the rest of your financials. So to, to a large extent, if you can tick those first two boxes, the third just plays out. And you're right. A lot of people focus on the financials because it's easy to quantify. It is numbers, but it's easy to quantify what you're expecting. The first two are very qualitative. And yes, you can try and quantify the industry and the market. You know, We can look at in my industry, for example, people talk about the TAM being 20 billion by 2027 or whatever the number Forrester comes up with. But it doesn't mean anything when you're a at the moment, 60 million market, you know, revenue business growing at 20%. So it just means that there is a large market there to, to, to potentially take. But more importantly, it's can we execute on that? And if we believe we can, then we should be growing faster than the market. And if the market in our case is said to be growing at 14%, then for us to achieve 15 to 20% should be doable, ultimately. And that And that's the key. So I think... Focusing on the financials to begin with is almost the wrong way of looking at it. And I think that's the mistake often people make. Because they're in financial financial position, they'll present the financials first because that's their bread and butter. That's what they'll know well. That's the easy thing to present. It's a lot harder to present the investment case behind the business model and the management team. But those, for most investors, are probably more important than the numbers to a large extent because the numbers should play out so long as you trust the first two.
0: And I think that in your dot digital is a very established company, so the the numbers should be far more predictable on that basis. I guess when you actually move into earlier stage ventures, that that investment thesis is arguably even more important. Again, because you won't have this reams and years of data to to sell on.
1: Yeah, I mean we're fortunate in our business model being a SaaS recurring revenue contracted model. So ultimately, whether Dot .digital was 10 million of revenue or 60 million of revenue, having 90% plus of your revenue being recurring, you're not going to be too far off at the end of the year in terms of your forecasting. But to your point, in terms of smaller businesses, absolutely, because you don't have any numbers to go off of. You could have your three and five-year forecasts, but a lot of them – and I remember this from from my startup when I was raising money for through angel investors – I could put three year figures, five year figures out there, but they're they're kind of finger in the air. And ultimately, you're going to maximise them in order to to show the potential to try and raise that funding. But what are they buying into? Into they're not buying into the numbers. They're buying into you as a founder. They're buying into the business model, and they're buying into the strategy. So if the investor in early stage companies is buying into that, it's just as imperative for larger companies. It's the same same principle. So I think. As I say, the numbers typically play out as long as you are executing well within your market and your business is well positioned and you continue to invest in it. And I think that's key. So for any, anyone who's having to present to a board or in potential investors, for me, there's three things. Again, keep it simple, focus on the big picture to begin with, because that, that sets the scene and sets the narrative, then go into the detail. And show them what's possible. Because if you do it in a different order, it comes across as though you're not as comfortable in that big picture. If the numbers aren't going to match, if the numbers are presented first, it, it's harder for them to match up to and marry up to the strategy and the bigger picture. So that, for me, that order has always worked. But ultimately, they are buying into you as a management team if if they're investing.
0: It's funny when you mentioned TAM and that TAM can be anything you make it. I, I once made that mistake. I was presented to a, a senior finance leader and it was at Dropbox at the time and we were talking about a big program and and we sold it on, okay, this is the TAM. And he was great about it, but he did he did say that I don't like TAM because you just take a big number, you multiply it by another big number and you get an even bigger number. And then he said, okay, so let, let's think about this differently. And, and we did and, and we worked through it. But that always stuck with me is that, You're because the the, the selling, of course, we're talking about now is trying to talk about a company vision externally to investors of some sort, whether it's public or or growth investors. But I'm sure there are many people within dot digital who are who are actually coming to you to maybe sell a, a business case or an investment case and say, actually, this is what we want to do. And this is why we want to do it. So like do you then apply the same principles in reverse so to try and guide the team to say listen you you can come to me with the business case but let's let's talk about you know the concept in the big picture first
1: yeah i probably shouldn't say this but they did it that way it'd be much more um <laughs> it would resonate a lot more
0: <laughs>
1: so you're right that is how i look at it it's interesting you say that because we are we have a junior end so over the last month or so, all of our senior leadership team have presented to myself and Milan, the CEO, their plans for next financial year and and the investment they would like. And yeah, some of them will start off with the detail first to say, this is the investment I need. If I get this investment, these are the numbers I'll hit. But others others do it probably in, in more of a the way I've kind of outlined, which is look at the opportunity here look at the different geographical territories we could enter, look at the within different departments, it could be areas of marketing spend that we could invest more into, or whatever that may be more into products in, in these areas. And then, then, okay, if we do this, this is what we could achieve. But in order to achieve this, we're going to need this level of investment. And if we do this, then that will play out. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think whether it's talking to the investment community uh, looking at listed shares, whether it's looking at, you know, your potential angel or VC or PE type backers, or whether it's just pitching internally to your CFO or FD or CEO for funding within the business. I think it's the same key message that you'd like to get across as to why you want to do it, how you're going to execute on it, and therefore what you need, and then what are the results. And ultimately, it's we're all in a results-driven business. Whichever business we're in, so executing on it is you know you've got a metric that you're going to hit or need to hit, which is which is the numbers, but ultimately, if you don't believe in the bigger picture, the ability of that individual to to manage the team to hit those numbers, it's harder to invest into that department say versus another, but you're right, it's definitely the same model that I would use internally as well
0: so some tips for the team potentially for <laughs> for persuading you with a business case.
1: If they're listening, then yes, uh, definitely.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I find that fascinating as well. Is that because it's very easy? It's reminiscent of the the pyramid principle, which that McKinsey are famous for. Which you know, lead with your conclusion, and then your supporting evidence, and then you can talk about the data that sits within each piece of that, and you you build it in reverse. And I think that. That some of it comes down to the way that you're thinking. So in your case, you're clearly someone who likes the big picture first and then you can dive into the details. Our CEO, our founder, he's very much of an engineering mindset. And so his, just his way of thinking is like to look at the component parts and build the way up. And so one thing that that I've noticed is that they need to judge quite quickly the the audience and, and how they're thinking about things and then and then switch it potentially on that basis is that it's very hard to do if you're building, say, if you've got a pre prepared say analyst presentation or company presentation but is that something that you also try and build into the way that you'll tell those narratives and those stories is like reading the audience and then adjusting accordingly
1: oh absolutely because when when meeting with investors today for example when when we're a management team but also compare that to when meeting investors as an analyst the audience definitely needs different things so you you prepare for all eventualities. So I talk about the big picture and and putting that first, et cetera. But there are cases where you have to have a detailed bottom-up view as well. But you put that first because they want to go straight into the weeds rather than, than because someone may believe they, they understand the industry, understand the dynamics. But also, you know, when you're presenting to people, whether it be twice a year or more often, you have probably gone through that big picture a number of times in the past. So at that point, the big picture becomes less important unless there's been a substantial change. And therefore, you're you're now presenting an update on the detail. So we, for example, as a business, you can say we, we were looking to invest X into region Y. And that was a year ago. This is now the results of that investment. Very simple case. And that's, I think, with everything. So you do, when we're meeting with people first up, completely fresh, usually they do want that big picture context. Because it's interesting, actually. The first question you get asked when you're meeting someone completely new, and that was whether I was as an analyst explaining companies or today as CFO of Dot Digital when we are on investment roadshows. The first question you get asked is, can you give me the two-minute background on the business? Where you've come from, and where you're going to. So I think most people want that context. They want to understand top down what it is you're doing, where you have come from, what you're looking to achieve, and then go into the detail of how you're going to achieve it. So I think even if you're talking to an engineer or, or, or an accountant who who wants to go into all that level of detail, I still think contextualizing it, even if it's brief, it gives the story better light because you could just go straight into, we are, you know, just take .digital, we're a SaaS model, we generate 20% plus return on top line with a 20% plus operating margin. Now, that's given you some financial metrics, but it hasn't really told you a huge amount about what the business does, how it's evolved, what level of investment's been needed what the plan is there 's no sort of way of contextualizing that beyond comparing that to other financial metrics of other businesses and saying, well they grow twenty percent, they grow ten they grow thirty they're doing a margin of x they're doing a margin of y but and that's fine because everyone looks at valuation multiples and comparables and all those tables and charts to see what could look interesting but for me if i 'm investing say my personal money into a business, I want to know what does that company do. Where is it going? What is the background of the management team? And why is it I believe they'll be successful? What is it they have that that others may not? So if you're investing your personal wealth that way, and I'd assume most people do, rather than purely just off some kind of valuation table, wouldn't you want the story explained in that way? So I think it's always worth contextualizing what you're looking to achieve. And that's not just on the business, it could be anything. As you mentioned, internally, when you're pitching to it could be pitching to other departments, it could be trying to help. As a business partner to other departments, it's always worth contextualizing what you're trying to achieve first. And that, to me, is good communication so that you can then follow that up with the detail to say, look, this is what we're trying to achieve. And this is how we think we can help you or we can work together to achieve it. And that, to me, goes down a lot better than starting with uh, your numbers say X, Y, Z. That says this. (laughs) That's great. I mean, that's insight. But to me, that's not... (laughs) Doing it in the right way to contextualize,
0: and I'd I'd love to go back to something that you mentioned earlier on, which that which is the idea of the dot digital and the board, and, and part of the reason that that you decided to join was that they wanted to move beyond purely accounting. Now, of course, accounting is is an important part of what's there, but you I, I read a quote from you which said that they were looking for someone who's more of an analyst and not just an accountant, so that they had to have complementary skills and. And so then with that in mind, that touches on a theme that comes up time and time again, which is the idea of the evolving role of a CFO. At the, in the past, it might have been restricted to more of an accountant and, and someone focused on that side of things, the reporting aspect. And more and more, it's moving towards a far broader more expansive reach that touches on all facets of the company and so it seems as if that's something that dot digital recognized and when they were commencing the search and and you started to have conversations with them is that something that that you have seen in your role or or you saw beforehand or is it just a coincidence that you know that that you met up with dot digital and that this is actually where the the where you've ended up
1: So to be fair to the board, I think they were proactively looking that way. I think Milan was also looking that way because Milan himself was the CFO before, is an accountant by trade. My FD, George, is an accountant. We have my financial controller, Joao, another accountant. And then at the time, all three of the board members were accountants themselves as well. So this is what I mean by we were very accounting heavy. But a lot of accountants' skill set is looking at reported numbers, looking at what's happened and reporting those numbers. It's not necessarily translating those numbers into what can happen. And I'm not talking about next month or next quarter. I'm talking about three to five years out. That's much more of of an analyst skill set of, I can see these trends. These are the bigger picture elements that are taking place within the industry, putting that all together, translating that into three and five-year forecasts. So they were proactively looking at someone who could help with the forward-looking element of it. I might say they, I mean the, the board at the time. But more importantly, it was the, the fact that the CFO in any business, and definitely the case for myself, we have access to pretty much all of the data that sits within the organization, whether that be the CRM information, of course, your accounting platform and, and everything that sits for us within Sage, plus any sort of customer data for us that sits in our customer platform. But all of the data that sits within the business, I have access to. There isn't really a... Most most businesses of, of let's say, mid-size, of our size and smaller, and even some larger, probably do not have one person or team sat there just analyzing the data and just saying, what does this data mean? Because it's not cheap to hire. And these aren't data scientists, but these are effectively analysts, right, ultimately. So I I suppose the the thinking from the board as well, why don't just bring in an analyst who can also help with the, the city and the investment community, who can also help the business to translate a lot of this data into tangible, actionable ideas that we can work off to understand what's happening. And also, to to some extent, you come in with a sort of fresh pair of eyes and you look at a lot of the processes and, and you try and improve them. So a lot of what my role has been is, of course, we have to get the annual reports out and the results and that side. But a lot of it has been helping to optimize a lot of the internal processes that we've had within the finance function, but also the wider business. So that digital transformation that everyone talks about, that is, I think, a large part of the modern CFO's role because you have a lot of information metrics about how different departments are performing, what's working, what's not, where time could be better spent. You have a lot of these ROI metrics from within your business as well. Add to that the amount of data you might get from your CRM showing efficiencies and and whatever it is is that you're measuring. Plus, then you've got all your financial information. And that financial data, of course, looks back at the previous month, quarter, year, etc. You can take all of that and then begin to look at, okay, what's working, what's not? Where should we be investing? What do we need to change? What's not working? What can we do to improve? What can we do to help people improve? So you have a lot of power, If you choose to look at it that way, others, I suppose a traditional CFO may just say, my job is to report what's happened. And it's someone else's job, CEO or someone else, to look at what can you do going forward to, to change it if things need to change. So in that way, as I say, I think the board is very forward thinking. A lot of companies now do have that more operational CFO, let's say. But underlying that is very much a data-driven decision maker, just to a large extent, to help the entire business to optimize. And I think that's, for me, the key. Can you get every department to drive a higher ROI? And if you can do that as a CFO, I think that's far more valuable than, well, my revenue last month was X, my profit was Y, and that's in line with what? The business needs. I mean, that that's great, but that doesn't give you anything to actually action on. Whereas, if you're looking at the information and saying, "Well, look, our pipe for next month is saying X, and this department's ROI looks to be dropping a little bit. Okay, what did we change? Why is that happening?" Speak to those departments and and then look at some of those metrics that people measure themselves on and say, "Are they the right metrics? Do they need to change? Has have things changed?" That to me, is a lot more valuable for the business. And so keeping on top of looking ahead, which sounds obvious, but is probably one of the hardest things to do, I think is definitely part of the role of today's more modern CFO role, especially in larger organizations. So the bigger that company gets, you can have a CFO and an FD, and you can have you know, an accounts team, much more focused on the reporting side of things. And then actually, as the CFO, you can take much more responsibility for that looking ahead piece, looking at where you should be investing, looking at what the, the best use of OPEX is, plus CAPEX, plus making sure that you're, from a public company point of view, hitting your numbers. And even, I suppose, as a private company, you're, you're still going to have to hit certain metrics for your your backers, So ultimately, yeah, the role of the CFO, I think, has definitely changed a lot over the last three or four years. I think our previous board was very proactive in in looking at that. And thankfully, that that worked out well for for us.
0: I can actually appreciate the... Working together with the the analyst group that you mentioned, so in various uh, previous roles, work very closely with the FPA analysts that have that have worked as business partners across um, the organisation, and they can be so incredibly powerful because. They provide a truth and a certainty because whenever some, whenever finance says something, you're like, okay, this is. There's a certain threshold of what we do, even within analysis, which is sometimes, of course, not on the same level as reporting. But when you have that that gravitas bringing to the table, but to other problems outside of the reporting arena, it can be immensely powerful. Which is where I'd imagine that the analyst becomes very much a business partner, which goes far beyond as you would describe it the strength and accountancy that that you would have had at the very beginning
1: yeah and and i think if i could get all of the accountants in my team to be forward looking and to anticipate what may happen that would be a, the optimal position because as i said it's very easy to look backwards and to report on what's happened and to show lots of pretty pictures and graphs and charts to say well we've come from here and we're now here and we've gone but actually can someone extrapolate that to well we're here today we need to get to x tomorrow We're currently trending towards why. How do we make the delta? Now, that is the hardest thing for any business because change is is not easy at the best of times. Change when you know you have to change, but you're not sure what to change is even harder because then you're trying different things and you may not have the capacity to do that. So if you can preempt areas of weakness, particularly before they happen, that's the ultimate sort of holy grail of, in my view anyway, of analysis and what you're you're looking to achieve. And if you can be better than what you thought, fantastic. That's just icing on the cake. So it's identifying those potential weaknesses before they become a weakness that for me is the biggest challenge and what we look for. And if you can do that and try and fix a problem almost before it happens, you're in a very strong position. So for us, touch wood there's not too many problems as such that we've had to fix but there there are always certain things right even if you're in your entire business everything's going swimmingly well you could always have some macro factor that comes in and and kicks things left out of left field and you're then <laughs> looking at okay what do we have to do and covid was one of those you know the pandemic has impacted every business in some way shape or form fortunately for us it's it's not been too too big an impact but at the beginning there was that uncertainty so you're always going to have to deal with uncertainties and and things going slightly off the straight line when you're looking at how things will trend but if you can preempt and deal with those faster than your competitors, faster than, than others, then you'll be in a stronger position. And I think that's the key. It's You've got to measure yourself against not just yourself, but also your peer group, because ultimately in any business, that's what you're you're competing against.
0: And that is a very interesting concept because it's not just about arriving at a decision, say, as, as a group within your company, within your team. But if, as you said, if you can do that, faster than peers, than competitors, you can have it, and, and you can do that sustainably, consistently. You can have a competitive advantage. And so th- that's a... It's a very interesting concept, and, and I wonder you mentioned COVID. I mean, it's hard to have any conversation about uh, looking into the future without talking about COVID. And I'd imagine your forecasting in uh, this time last year was maybe more challenging than than this year, thankfully. But of course, you're part of a know um, the Bank of England decision making panel that's looking at the the effect of say Brexit and COVID on the economy. I'd imagine, of course, focused on the UK. So m- maybe to put your uh, forward looking skills to the test. Could you speak a little bit about how you see the reopening of the economy, whether that's, of course, in part in the UK down to Brexit or whether, of course, it's worldwide and down to COVID? Because I think that's very much on the forefront, and I'm sure it's on yours too, but the forefront of all financial leaders and all senior executives is looking for the green shoots of recovery so that they can take advantage of those opportunities.
1: You're absolutely right. This time last year when modelling out the year ahead was quite challenging but to be fair we were quite prudent and, and that's probably helped us in in that the areas that we thought we wouldn't be spending at all on and that would be things like travel we budgeted for some recovery in the second half which then gives you a bit of fat when looking at the numbers because you're going to underspend versus your forecast which is no bad thing necessarily offices reopening again I mean, IFRS 16 helps from a P&L perspective in that a lot of those office costs are no longer on your P&L. You're just capitalizing. So that helps a little bit. But ultimately, there are other associated costs that do impact your P&L that sit alongside the reopening of offices. And that was a difficult one to forecast because this time last year, everyone was hoping that by, let's say, before Christmas, things would be open again. And they weren't. So, again, that helps when you're forecasting and you're putting this in. but ultimately. You're over over well, potentially overspending on areas which you could have reinvested back into marketing and others, and and we are fortunately flexible enough where we then were, did put more back into marketing and sales through the course of the year because we have that flexible operating model. Looking ahead to your point, I think there's a few factors that you have to consider. So, look, everyone's still talking June 21st. We could we could just be fully open. <laughs> nightclubs open and and the UK just be back to normal, but I think the thing people forget is the emotional side of things, because let's say if things open up fully and nightclubs are open and we're talking about now fifty percent plus of the country has had at least one vaccine and I think probably another twenty percent or so have had both, does that mean emotionally people just feel they can just go out and do whatever and mix and forget about social distancing, not worry about if you catch it, are you still infectious to others or not? Or So I think there's still going to be that emotional element for people to, to overcome around, firstly, just mixing with other people, because I don't remember the last time I've ever been in, in a social scenario with, with more than six people. for a long time. But also, You've got a, a large percentage of people who have got used to this kind of... We're working from home. We're not doing a huge amount of socializing beyond meeting a couple of people here and there, usually outside. It's summer. It's nice. You can meet outside. So I think, to answer your question, I think it will take longer for things to open up fully, to be fully utilized. So clubs can be open. Restaurants can be open. Bars can be open. Other forms of entertainment, whether it be cinemas and and whatever, are all open. But actually, to get to the utilization rates that we had prior to the pandemic beginning, I'm not sure that happens in at least a six-month period, assuming June 21st everything opens up in the UK. So let's say 2022, we could start to get close to those utilization levels because there's a six-month period people see positive news flow, the hospitalizations aren't aren't increasing, deaths aren't increasing, etc. So 2022, and that's the UK. Now you look at the rest of the world, when do we actually go on holiday? When does the rest of the world open up? Well, a lot of it comes down to vaccination programs, those countries having the confidence that they can open up. We as a country being confident that we can send people to other countries and, and then come back and not, there's no issue. That to me takes a lot longer. So I'm, I'm not expecting a huge amount of international travel for, let's say more than what we've seen in the last year for most of next year. I think 2023 would be when you begin to see that start to return back to normal levels, because you've got the vaccination programs across the world that should have kicked in by that point. But I think I read the stat this morning because we have an office in Melbourne and a couple of offices in Australia. So the state of uh, Victoria is back into lockdown, Melbourne in particular, because they've had six cases last week or something and 60 cases overall, which compare that to the UK and we'd be in lockdown permanently if that were the case. But they've obviously locked down their borders. And so they've only got a, I mean, I don't know if the number was right, but it's a a couple of percent of the population so far has been vaccinated. So you've got sort of Western countries, obviously not geographically, but in terms of the economy, still not having large scale vaccination programs that have that have taken place. So I think the UK and the US are the most ahead. But there's a lot of countries where that hasn't happened. It's, it's taking a lot longer. It's a lot slower. So I think for international travel to resume, and I don't think it ever gets back to the levels it was because we've all got comfortable with virtual meetings and video calls and we've become more productive because I'm having a lot more conversations with our US and, and Australian colleagues today because we can do this at any time from home, you're more comfortable doing it. Versus do I want to do a conference call at midnight from the office? Not really. Whereas from home, you're a bit more forgiving. So yeah, I think, I think the world will begin to open up over the next 18 months, but, but slowly. And it's going to take longer than I think people expect. It can't just go back to how it was immediately.
0: And within that depiction is that you're also touching on the fact that Dot digital has such a global team so you, you're you're active in, in many different markets and you mentioned Australia has been one of those. And so now the your workforce is largely remote or a, to some degree potentially hybrid but of course that can help with the way that you engage to your point like the the, the remote teams the, the teams are in far far-flung regions. But I'd imagine it it might complicate your growth strategy when you're thinking about which markets to open up or to invest further in because of this uncertainty. Is that something, again, if you're thinking about investment plans without going into necessarily specifics, but is that something that has complicated your international expansion?
1: So as a business, we've kind of come to the conclusion that um, we will move to a much more flexi-working model going forward. So I don't envisage more than... I'd say somewhere between five and twenty percent of the workforce being full-time office-based. It could be at a lower end, to be fair, for those roles that really have to be office-based. But otherwise, it would be very flexible. So we operate in obviously I've mentioned the US and Australia, but we've we've got offices in South Africa, we've got Poland, Belarus, we've got the Netherlands, Singapore. So we're already operating in a lot of regions where that flexi working was already in place where we don't necessarily have everyone in offices or or certain teams wouldn't work in offices and they'd be they'd be fully remote already. So when we're looking at new territories and you know I can say that we we're, we're looking at probably two or three new territories in terms of expansion this year or next financial year rather, we would probably look at hiring people remote first anyway because it's part of the culture as we've done that in the first place. So we want local presence, but we're happy for them to be remote and, and not need an office. I think offices really, once you start to get to maybe 30, 40 people, then you might need some location where where people can, can actually meet. But when you're talking about two, three, four, in our experience, it's not been as necessary. And the pandemic's shown that people can work more efficiently to be honest in a lot of cases working from home and being more flexible than having to go into a fixed office every day so it hasn't hurt us in that sense or or hindered us but the challenge is you can't meet people face to face before you hire them so of all the people that we've hired over the last 12 months to be fair I've never met any of them face to face and their hiring manager has probably not, well, I know in finance, for example, I've not met some, a lot of those team members we've hired in the last 12 months and the hiring managers won't have met those people. And some of them have, they've come and gone in some cases, but you know, you know that it's tougher in that sense, but I have good faith in our sort of recruitment team's methodology and how we operate. And we've made a lot of good hires and we we were kind of used to making hires in remote territories, but we always had someone on the ground that they could meet. But now, you know, we've hired more people in the likes of South Africa and Poland recently, but, but we've just not been able to get out there to, to actually meet them face-to-face. But we're used to that kind of online onboarding <laughs> Of, uh, of new staff so it, it's been okay but that's probably the biggest challenge i think that that covid presents when when you just haven't met people in your team for a year who've who joined face to face but video calls and things help i think if this pandemic was 20 years ago the world would struggle significantly without video conferencing technology, without the, the speed of the Internet we have today and and all the other ability that gives us that ability to work from home, the technology that's happened. Whereas if this was, you know, when I'd first started, for example, in the, in the city, I think life would be very difficult if there was these kinds of lockdowns. So thankfully, the, the, the saving grace to some extent is this happened now and not 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, and and we're talking on a business level, but on a personal level, that would be as true as ever with you know children, grandparents, and so on. It has come at a time where we've perhaps been as prepared as we ever could be to maintain that connection despite the the distance. The other theme that uh, that I wanted to touch on with you is is one that you mentioned recently on 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 a webcast that you were on and. It was the point where so you have this remote team and you're building that and you're scaling that. And of course, you, you the, the finance team is one that you were transforming to complement the strength that had an accountancy to add in that and that analytical analyst type mentality. And so the point that you raised on the, the webinar itself was around the, the importance or the power of the, the digitization, but particularly the automation that automation can actually rather than be something that you know streamlines it and means that you either don't need to hire or you, you like can have a trimmer team it actually means you can refocus the team abstract the team onto on, into higher order activities could you speak a little bit about your your point of view on that with automation because again it is a is it an increasing theme like for every business but i think it is emerging rapidly in in the finance department and in the minds of every cfo
1: yeah absolutely i think look, there's a, there's a lot of different options out there in order to how you could potentially automate a lot of processes right starting from ap to expenses to ar to a large extent credit control there's a number of things you could automate quite quite quickly with with robotic process automation and other forms of technology that's there you could do it to cost cut absolutely but the way i see it is rather than doing it to purely cut costs i've always believed in upskilling people, giving people that opportunity. You know, I, I joined when I first started at Goldman Sachs as a graduate and spent two years working all sorts of hours, but learning my trade. And if I wasn't given that opportunity, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so the way I see it is when you bring people into a business, into an organization, it's your responsibility as the manager, as the business, to make sure that person continues to, to grow to learn more, to become more valuable, not just to the business, but but to themselves to a large extent. Because if you can let people come up through the business, and you know Milan as our CEO is a classic example. He started off as I think it was sort of in the top fifteen or first one of the first fifteen or twenty employees we had as a business. He's come all the way through from where he started to being the CEO. So ours is an organisation where we do try and help people to, to progress through the business. We've got a number of people who've been with the company five, 10 plus years. And so if you can automate the manual processes that just take time but aren't really adding value to then allow your team to learn more around that forecasting, learn all around looking at the data, what does it mean, doing, interacting more with other parts of the business and growing as a Person as a employee, and helping the business, but themselves feeling like they're doing more value add. Ultimately, that works in everyone's favor. So you could then potentially automate processes and hire in expensive people who have already done the role, who who know. But I think that that satisfaction that comes from having seeing a, a, a sort of a younger person or a, or a more junior role grow and become more proficient in their role, learn the business, understand the business. And what you'd hope for, and this is the key to it, is you get much more back from them. You also you're gonna have people who are more wedded to the business, who who are more just happier in what they're doing day-to-day, but they will be far more open to growing within that business then if you bring someone in who's probably got their own style they've they've learned from somewhere else and and they're less flexible is, is what I've seen historically yes you sometimes do need to add talent from outside but you get the commitment you get that level of feeling I suppose it's an intangible to some extent where where people just feel you've helped them out and therefore they're stickier ultimately they're less likely to want to walk away and and you as a manager also feel you're helping people so it's a symbiotic win-win relationship if you can help people to move away from doing the, the manual stuff and, and absolutely I think all finance functions should automate a lot of that basic functionality because why wouldn't you and and then that gives you the opportunity for your team to be doing far more interesting progressive value add work that can help the business in a, in a much better way and ultimately that in my opinion, anyway, is what the the business should be looking at.
0: Which is a very interesting concept because then you're using automation rather than to cut costs or, you know, to increase time to market, which is often, these are things that are mentioned. You're using it in a way to drive employee engagement and opportunity, and and the that retention of of your team, which of course is another existential challenge. But again, not one that's often associated with finance. It's more perhaps the people team or CEO. But I think that probably that's a another nod to the expanding scope and and remit of of a CFO in today's world.
1: Absolutely, I think getting commitment from your team, getting buy in to your vision, the company's vision. You need it from all departments. It can't just be sales and marketing and in HR that, that buy into it. it. It's got to be finance and legal and operations and other parts of the business that, that also understand where the business is going and how they play a part. Because every single person within the business is a component that plays a part in the success of the business. Unless that individual understands that or is, or is shown how that's the case, and it gives them a sense of responsibility, you're not going to have everyone working optimally to the benefit of the business. So absolutely, you, you want to empower people to make them feel that they are playing a part in the growth of the business. It's, it's not just the salespeople who, are genera- you know, who have a revenue number on their head. Every single role is important. And the more you can upskill that role and make that role something that people can see the value add easily, it becomes easier to manage, and absolutely employee satisfaction, employee commitment to the business, and and ultimately the happiness of the overall business and and your culture. That's where it stems from, and and that's what we look to do at Dot Digital. It's great when it works because you see people coming through, going all the way from the lowest rung right to the top, and that's possible, and that that shows people the opportunity that's there if they want to take it. And they're given that opportunity, so it means doors are open. And I think for me, that's always the hardest challenge in any organisation where you have a. You know, every organisation has a pyramid structure, and people often feel the only way a door opens is if someone above moves. But you you can't have that as your as your opening because that creates politics. That creates a culture of I need to show I'm better than my manager, and therefore I can take my manager's job. It doesn't that's that's the wrong culture. You need people to feel that there's opportunity for them to do more in their current roles. Plus, if they were to go up a role, it's not determined by whether there's someone else sitting in that job. It's about the value that you're adding in your role to the business. And therefore, every role plays a key part in some way, shape or form. And if everyone feels that, I think you get a much better culture and a much better level of employee satisfaction.
0: And with that in mind, uh, many of our listeners will be people who are aspiring CFOs. They would l- like to move and progress their career into that direction. What advice would you give to those people? Given the context of, you know, what the the type of finance function that that you're building and your perspective on that, and the evolving role of the CFO, what advice would you give to to those people who are slightly earlier in their careers but have you know got big aspirations?
1: Again, probably. A few key things. The first is, look, ultimately, as a CFO, you do need to know your numbers. And that doesn't just mean your financial figures, your p and balance sheet, cash flow. That just means you've got to be comfortable with data. Because the more comfortable you are with data to, to understand how you can use data, what data is relevant, what data is not. So you've got to have that level of comfort. The second is, I would say, work on communication skills. Because whilst traditional CFOs, you report on numbers, communication probably wasn't seen as a most necessary skill set. I think that's definitely changed where you need to be able to communicate not just to your teams, but to the wider, whether it be a leadership team in your organization, but to all other departments. You know, I I probably spend 70% of my time talking to other departments than I do talking to my department because they lean on me for lot of information and just conversation around certain things but ultimately because you need to have a big picture of what's happening across the entire business and i think the third part is beyond sort of numbers and communication is whatever industry you're in whatever company you're looking to to work for make sure you know that as well as you can because you can go and work for any company and then try and learn it And understand what they're doing, et cetera. But it's far easier if you've got a knowledge base of the business, its competitors, the industry they're in, to be able to then add value straight away. Because no CFO walking into the role day one will know the numbers inside out. It's not possible. But you can know the industry, you can know the market. So, a little bit of what I was saying at the outset if you know the industry and you're able to articulate what it is you're looking to achieve and looking to do then you can get to grips with the numbers to see what is it that you need what gaps need to be closed what is it that's working what is it that's not to eventually get there so if you know your industry and you know your targets bigger picture at least that gives you a head start whereas if you're coming into any company fresh you won't know the numbers because ultimately it's not not a business you'll have worked in and and everything you're going to have to pick up. So it's good to have some prior knowledge of, you know, it's one of those things when we interview candidates, we'll just ask them a very simple question around the industry just to see if they've done their homework. Because if you've shown no interest in the industry or the company, yes, you can do your job, but ultimately are you going to be successful at doing your job in the way the business wants? Probably not. Not always the case, but probably not
0: it should be the easiest research to do because it's the <laughs> one that one that's very obvious to often to find but i think that's very very sage advice but i I want to thank you for your time uh, for coming on the show and um, there's been some fascinating insights if anyone that was listening wanted to connect with you where could they go and and either follow or connect with you
1: LinkedIn is probably the easiest one. I'm on there. But otherwise, you know, being a publicly listed company, my email address is probably in our annual report as well. But (laughs) LinkedIn would be the first and foremost place to to go to and happy to connect with anyone who who would like to. But uh, no, thank you, Ross, for for your time as well. It's it's been uh, been a great discussion.
0: Thank you very much, Barak. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone that you think would enjoy it. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo, the number one corporate card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com.